Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Hannah Arata, and I am Waterstone's new preaching resident. So it's great to be here. <laughs> this is a reading from Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged place a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The word of the Lord. So excited. Oops, sorry. So excited to have Hannah. And Josh Bragg as our two newest residents, which brings our total number of four. And I don't know if you realize this, uh, over the history of Waterstone, we estimate that somewhere between 70 and 80 residents have uh, served here and now pastor or teach or uh, are global partners around the world. And that's you. That's you as a congregation fingerprinting these lives 
and they are advancing the kingdom all over the world. Well done, Waterstone. So, uh, yeah. Uh, how many of you were at the fall festival last week? Yeah, good. How many of you volunteered at that? We just want to say thank you for all that. We have no idea how many people were there. There was a lot of people there. You know, initially we thought it was because of the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. But after you, uh, like a number of us served at the welcome table and, and all of you kept coming up and you'd bring your neighbors that you invited. You put a lot of people into our parking lot to experience the joy of the Lord, the kingdom of God as a party. Thank you for all the invitations and all uh, the neighboring that went on this last week. Hey, a couple of things, just uh, family things. One, um, after the final song today, we're going to ask you to stay for a few extra minutes as we have a very important staff announcement to make, and uh, you'll want to be here for that. Second, we want to make you aware, sadly, that we have lost our lead worshiper for this time, Charlie Vesley. Many of you knew Charlie, he used to sit right here. He was our lead worshiper. He's having a very different worship experience this morning. He uh, had pancreatic cancer. He died rather, rather quickly, and uh, we miss him. So uh, we will let you know the funeral arrangements have not been made. Charlie has a sister and her husband and her family. They will be making those arrangements in the coming weeks, probably going to be in early November. Uh, before we have any kind of service. We'll keep you posted. Check the Waterstone News for that. And pray for Charlie's family, Charlie's home. Um, seems like there was one other thing. Oh, yes. Uh, I wanted us this morning to do uh, part of our liturgy we call prayers of the people. When we look around the world and um, we pray for uh, an area that needs prayer, and I know that our hearts would go to Israel this morning in Palestine. So I wanted to read a couple of verses from a Davidic psalm, Psalm of David, about Jerusalem, and then just give us a moment to lift our hearts to the Lord for this very troubled area, the grieving, the violence, all that's going on in Israel and Palestine. Let's lift our hearts together with these words. Psalm 22, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. In the quiet, let us pray. O oh Lord, hear our prayers. By your grace and for your glory, Father. By your grace and for your glory, Son. 
by your grace and for your glory, Spirit. Godhead three in one, as it was in the beginning, is now, and forevermore will be. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I came across an article in Christianity Today written by Isabel Ong, and she starts this way. I was a bridesmaid at a friend's wedding this summer. The night before the big day, I ransacked my kitchen to concoct a welcome drink for the groom and his groomsmen. I stirred oyster sauce, vinegar, ketchup, lemon juice, honey, ginger, matcha powder, and Sichuan pepper into a big bowl. This welcome drink was part of a Chinese wedding custom we call door games, where bridesmaids give the groom and his groomsmen a series of challenges before the groom can meet his beloved face to face. If the groom and groomsmen are able to imbibe everything, no matter how horrid it tastes, it's a sign that the new couple will be able to stomach anything that comes their way. <laughs> Isabel goes on to say that this wedding custom, which is now mostly done for fun, obviously, but it's really a reflection of Chinese culture. In fact, they have a phrase for it. It's called qi ku, which means eating bitterness. Eating bitterness is a big part of Chinese culture. In fact, when bitterness comes into life, the Chinese culture is three things. One, don't complain. Two, don't bring shame to your family. And three, keep working hard. That's how you eat bitterness in a Chinese culture. I was captured by her title. She entitled this piece, Eating Bitterness. My culture helps me persevere but the Bible helps me hope. I thought, that's the big idea of Isaiah 40, right there. Thank you. Our culture helps us persevere, but the Bible brings us hope. That is Isaiah 40. How into our perseverance, hope can come. So let me do the frame as we enter this uh, very famous, I'm guessing some of you uh, heard some of the Handel's Messiah in Isaiah 40. In fact, in Isaiah 40 through 55, there are 14 references in Handel's Messiah to Isaiah 40. Uh, very, I would argue, based on that alone, probably one of the most listened to scriptures in the history of the world. Isaiah chapter 40. The frame of context is this. When we last left, last week, uh, the people of God, Judah, they were worried about an incoming Assyrian invasion. The empire of Assyria was at the peak of its power. But what happened in Judah, instead of depending on human wisdom and power and seeking to build an alliance with Egypt, a great king rose up by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, probably top five in all the kings of Israel and Judah, uh, an amazing man of character. And what he did is he went into the temple, got down on his knees, and he prayed, and he prayed. And he invited Isaiah to come so he could listen to the word of God. And he humbled himself, and he rallied the people to humble themselves. And guess what? It just so happened that on the morning Assyria was thinking of invading uh, 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 Judah, there was a plague among their army, wiped them out. Goodbye, Assyria. 
They survived. In fact, this, the God's people Judah would live about another hundred years without being part of an empire. So all this happened. Everyone's happy. Hezekiah has his own personal life crisis when he gets sick. And it appears he's going to die. We don't know exactly what was happening, but he was very sick. And he pleads to the Lord. He says, Can, Lord, would, I'm in midlife. I've got a lot to do yet. You would take me down now. Please don't. And the Lord says, okay, I'll give you another 15 years. Well, in that 15 years was just enough temptation to power, temptation to wealth, that it corrupts Hezekiah. And, you know, character always starts at the top. The people get distracted and off mission again. And before you know it, the Babylonians are knocking on the door, the next world empire. And instead of, you know, fasting, praying, seeking the Lord, what Hezekiah does is he opens the doors. Hey, come in, see the temple, all these envoys from Babylon. I'll show you everything. I'll show you places that only the priest should be. I'll show you the palace. I'll show you everything. And not once is there a mention, not once, of the Lord or his glory. It's all about Hezekiah. It's all about now the people of God and what they've done. And here's where we pick up the verses just before Isaiah 40. We read, then Isaiah the prophet said to Hezekiah the king, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you, will be taken away. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah, in language that sounds very similar to our own culture, says, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, for he thought, There will be peace and prosperity in my lifetime. And then we enter Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort ye my people. But before we get there, what's happened is that because of um, the Lord, uh, his faithfulness to Israel, but their unfaithfulness to him, he's telling them now, hey look, Babylon is going to carry you off into exile. If I could put it in this language, you now will need to eat the bitterness. You're going to eat the bitterness. So how will you respond? What message will Isaiah give to give hope into this bitterness and their perseverance? I mean, they're asking these questions. These are the questions that the original readers are now asking. What does it mean that the God who delivered Judah from Assyria will not now deliver them from Babylon? Is God still the Holy One? Is he still Lord of the nations who has history under his control? Can we trust him. And what Isaiah is going to say to the people, you can trust him, even though you have to eat this bitterness of Babylon, because he's a mighty king and he's coming. But he's coming like a shepherd. And so how do we respond today to a mighty king who comes to us as a shepherd? In times of bitterness, there's our hope. The mighty king who is a shepherd. Let's walk through this. Who's the mighty king? Who's coming? Well, we see that in verses 3 through 5. 
Again, I won't read all these. Uh, you can read, read those again. Uh, but we see that someone big is coming. When the original audience would have read this, they would have said, oh, of course, this is royal language. What, whenever a king in the ancient world, whether king of Assyria, king of Babylon, even the Roman empires, because they thought the human kings were gods, the, the, the kings in the ancient world never traveled on the regular roads. You would never catch a king on C-470. They had new highways built wherever they went. Can you imagine? We know this from manuscript evidence, archaeologists' evidence. We found a, we, the archaeologists found a, um, uh, a saying from an ancient Babylonian hymn that talks about language that sounds very familiar with this. It's, it's to the Babylonian god Nebu, make his way good, renew his road, make straight his path, hew him out a track. That's a hymn sung to a Babylonian king, Nabu. And the kings, because they're so far above us, they're so like other, they're so holy, so different, they're the king, that they would have a new road built wherever they went. And so this language, someone's big's coming. Someone's big. It's like a 30-car SUV processional. He's coming. It's like the dash shaking, lots of water shaking on the dashboard. Jurassic Park. It's something big is happening. Someone important is coming. Make way. Make way. He's coming. And now the text goes on to say this king, though, he's much bigger than any human king. Much, much bigger. Why? Because when a human king's come and you have to build a new road, well, you build a bridge over the royal gorge. Or you drill a hole through Loveland Pass to get to where you're going. But this king doesn't need any of that. Do you know why? Because when this king, the king speaks, the valleys lift up and the mountains come down and they make straight paths for him at the power of his word. This is a king coming like no other king. When we have to eat the bitterness of Babylon, we remember that one day a king like no other will come. And he will make things new and make straight paths. And the valleys of injustice will rise and the mountains of oppression will sink. And king is coming. Now, some of you are thinking on, watching online. Some of you in the room checking out this Christianity. You're of course, that's what I expect you to say. Of course, you would say that. I mean, that's, that's the mythology. That's what's in every world religion. That someday a big king will come and he will be powerful and he will make everything all right. Of course, I would expect you to say the fairy tale. If you're asking that question, that's a good question to ask. And if you're wrestling with that, that's a really good match. I think it, it stirs like what all of us have deep down, a yearning for that kind of thing. There's a rustling that goes into us. And if you're, if you're asking even that question, if you're even thinking this might be a fairy tale, what I would ask you is, yeah, but it's stirring you up a little bit, isn't it? There's something in there. Maybe worth checking out. No one has checked it out better than a writer, an American writer named Annie Dillard. 
She was a formative influence in my early years of ministry. Her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, or Holy the Firm, or this particular one called, Teach, or called um, T- Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And in this book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, she's sitting by a creek in Virginia, and she's watching nature and writing a journal. And she sees a large water bug end up on top of a frog, and the water bug injects some kind of poison into the frog's brain, kills the frog, sucks its guts out. Welcome to Waterstone. And, um, <laughs> and the frog dies. And it's traumatic for her. She writes about it. And she begins to wrestle with nature being nature, the strong survive, the strong eat the weak. That's the rules of nature. But then there's something inside of us that's repulsed by that. Where does that repulsion come from? Why is it important to human beings that if a person is a strong one eating the weak, we, we, we um, um, interrupt. If a strong nation is eating weak nations, we do something. What's the disalignment here, the misalignment? She writes, this is really good. Either this world, my mother is a monster, or I myself am a freak. Consider the former. The world is a monster. You say there's no right or wrong in nature. Right and wrong is a human concept. Precisely. We are moral creatures then in an all-moral world. This view requires that a monstrous world running on chance and death careening blindly from nowhere to nowhere, somehow produced wonderful us. I crawled out of a sea of amino acids, and now I must whirl around and shake my fist at that sea and cry, shame on you for being so cruel. Or consider the alternative, that it is human feeling that is freakishly amiss. Other creatures manage to have effective matings and even stable societies without great emotions, and they have a bonus in that they need not ever mourn. All right, then. It is our emotions that are amiss. We are freaks. The world is fine. Let us all go have lobotomies to restore us to a natural state. We can leave the library and go back to the creek, lobotomized, live on its banks, untroubled as any muskrat or reed. And then she says, you first. (laughs) Do you see the logic that Dillard is pushing? Either our idea that the strong not eat the weak is absurd, or else nature itself is unnatural or disrupted. How can nature be disruptive and disordered if nature is all we have unless there's something or someone outside of nature who is sending in justice signals to the human heart. What do you do with that? So yes, Isaiah says, in times of bitterness, we remember that a mighty king is coming. We have to decide if that's a fairy tale or if that's the truth. And if it's a fairy tale, Why is it so strong and won't go away in my own heart? But a mighty God is coming. But notice how he comes. Again, some historical framework for Isaiah. We've now entered a new section in the book. 
And scholars have these amazing debates about now who's writing in Isaiah 40. It seems like a disciple of Isaiah is now writing or someone later because we're now writing uh, towards a Babylonian exile, which is probably at least 100 years from when Isaiah first started. So there's all kinds of theories about who's writing. But the point is this, there's been a history now here, and the history, and it's the history of the prophets even, of all of them, that God's people keep failing to show up for God's heart. And as a result, they're going to be carried off into exile for more training and discipline. So that's what's going to happen. But it's important to note that in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, which we've sampled, the last few weeks, it's been mostly, if I had to put it in a word, judgment. It's been about accountability. It's God through the prophets holding his people accountable for what they have and have not done to display his heart to the world. He's holding God's people accountable. And I think it's very timely that we're doing this in an election year. Because if you think about God's heart, there is one particular political party that talks much about God's heart in terms of caring for the poor and the oppressed and the immigrant and the widow and the orphan. That, that talks much about greed and the, 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 the negative uh, impact of greed in a culture. And it, it talks much about racial prejudice. One party talks a lot about that. The other party talks about family values and sanctity of life and sexual purity and, um, you know, gender obedience, all, all these things. So one party has this about God's heart and one party has this about God's heart. And Isaiah is saying, yes, on all counts, we are guilty. We have not lived up to the heart of God. We have not displayed it well to the world. If I could just step in this, this, this is a free tangent for us this morning. I think that's actually one of the greatest dangers of a two-party system, is that we actually get to feel good about ourselves for having both feet planted firmly in one half of God's heart. When God wants us to reflect all his heart. So, what does he do? How does this king come when we failed him, when we're about to be carried off into exile for more input and discipline? He comes, verses 1 and 2, this way. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Let me just stop right there. The first thing we notice about when he comes to us, even though we failed him, is you see his language, my people, your God. What is that? My people, your God. That's covenant language. That God will not, cannot quit on his people. No matter what they've done or haven't done, they are still my people, I am still their God. Covenant God does not quit. You go on, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. It's an interesting word, hard service. Perhaps the best analogy in our modern culture would be a term of military duty, a four-year hitch or an eight-year hitch. You serve your time in the military. But what God is trying to communicate, that this Babylonian exile will be a measured time. It has a start and a finish. I'm controlling it. I have not abandoned you. It will be hard service, but there's a beginning and an end. 
and I'm writing it. And then lastly, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now that's really interesting language. And like, you probably like me, like I read this a couple of times at first earlier in the weekend, I think double for all her sins. Like, what, what does that mean, double for all her sins? And initially I had the thought, well, it must be punishment. Like they've been such a failure to show God's heart to the world. They've off mission that God's going to punish him twice. And then you think, well, no. We're, there's nowhere else in scripture where it says God punishes twice. God does not, once is enough when it comes to punishment. It's not double punishment. Do you know what it is? Double payment. That God is going to give Israel double payment for her sins. Well, what does that mean? What's double payment for sins? Well, let's go on. Verses 9 through 11 I think we get a sense of what this doubleness means. I'm going to skip down. Here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. And then it goes on to the next. See his reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. The mighty king comes like a shepherd. It says he bears his mighty arms. And that's the picture, right? Even in our culture, if you want to show someone your strength, you what? You flex. You just give it out there. But notice what these mighty arms do. They hold the lamb close to his heart. The mightiness is not in political power or military power. The bearing of the arms is to lift up a lamb and bring it close to his heart. The recompense is with him, it says. What, what does God need? Like his reward. What, what do you give a person who has everything? Later in Isaiah 40, it says that God, yeah, he has the stars. He knows them by name. He holds the oceans in his hands. All the nations are like dust on a scale. What do you give someone who has everything? Well, God says, what I want most, my treasure, my wealth, is my flock. Give me my flock, and I'm good. I come in mighty power, and I bear my arms so that I can hold my flock close to my heart. Do you see this God is so different, so, so different from any other God, from any other king? We saw it in the dark of night. In, in John, or uh, later in John, when uh, after the prayers in Gethsemane, they get up and Judas comes and they arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. And Peter impulsively pulls out a sword and slices off a uh, high priest servant's ear. And Jesus says, Stop! That's human power. That's human strength. Stop! He says, don't you think I could talk to my father and he'd send a thousand angels to rescue me right now? Don't you think I could do that? Instead, what I'm going to do is show my majesty and my power by submitting myself to this arrest, to this betrayal and beating, to this cross. I'm going to display my majesty by going to die for my flock.
And now comes the double payment. Because what happens when Jesus does that, Isaiah is pointing to this king, the mighty king who becomes a shepherd. He's pointing to Jesus. And what happens is that when Jesus chooses to do this and does, that he in his death is laying down his life for us. And he's doing two things in that moment at the same time. First, in laying down his life, he's forgiving our sins. Comfort, comfort my people. Your sins are paid for. And through his death, his sacrifice, he's paying for our our sins. But what's the double payment? The other thing that he's doing is saying, and because I'm dying for you, you are not just like your penalties paid, but you are actually now my flock. You're my child. You have a future. You have a family. You have a status with me. You are daughters and sons of the Most High. It's not just that your sins are forgiven, but you're welcomed by his arms. Double payment. It's like this. It's like if you were on death row, and make no mistake, we all were. We were on death row, but the governor intervenes and pardons us. And initially it's, yay, we're pardoned, yay, free to go. And so we go. But then what happens? Well, you go to get a job, and someone knows, well, You used to be on death row. I'm not sure I want you working at this company. And I know I don't want you marrying my daughter. But what the gospel, the good news of Jesus says, is that not only because of Jesus' death do you get your bad record taken away, but because he lived the life we should have lived, his good record is imputed to us. So his bad record is imputed to us, so Jesus gets treated like we should have been treated. But his good record, his righteous and perfect life, his righteousness is imputed to us. And so we get to be treated like he's treated. That's double good. That's the double good of the gospel. Our sins are forgiven and we are children of God. That's double and double good. Do you see it? Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welsh preacher of the last century. You can Google him. He's online. He's a Welsh preacher. The Welsh brogue is worth 50 points out of the gate. Listen to his sermon. He preached a sermon called True Foundation once. And he said, as he looked around at his congregation, he saw Christians struggling in life. They were Christians. They knew their sins were forgiven. But as they lived, they they had as much anxiety as non-Christians. They had as much what he called um, softness, like they got easily offended. They were always trying to fill the void in their heart with human affirmation. So if someone like slighted them, real or perceived, if someone didn't recognize them or give them attention, it was just misery for them. And they wanted more. And we've been around, honestly, people like that, who it's always give me, give me, build me up, feed me. And, and Lloyd-Jones says he's convinced it's because they don't understand the double goodness of the gospel. They know their sins are forgiven, but they haven't spent enough time reflecting on the fact that not only does Jesus forgive our sins, but he gives us a new status. If I could put it this way, we say this a lot at Waterstone. Here's what it means. The only opinion of you that counts is God's. And he thinks you're pretty good. He calls you a child. He's adopted you into his family. You have a future. You have a status. You are good to go. But we spend so much time trying to get that from everyone else. 
What makes us a gracious person to be around is to spend more time in that grace. How God has made us his own. The gospel is double good. We're forgiven and we're welcomed. So how do we respond to that? Two ways at least. Well, one, one word Two ways. So if you go to the end of the text, there's this, this famous verse that's on a lot of our wall plaques. It's at the very end of Isaiah 40. It says that they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles and soar. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. Wait on the Lord. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? Because he's a mighty king who comes as our shepherd, we wait on him. So in this Time of eating bitterness, how do we wait? It means at least two things. First, we listen to him. We listen for him. We listen. It's interesting, in Isaiah 40, 1 through 11, the words say, speak, talk, lift your voice occurs 11 time, 14 times in 11 verses. In other words, God is speaking. Listen, listen, listen. This is from God. God is speaking. My friends, we need to spend more time listening to God. That is time in his word, time listening to like the great Bible app we promote around Waterstone called Lexio 365. Write it down. Download it right now. Lexio 365 was just reading scripture and prayer. But spending time listening, more time listening to God than listening to news, listening to, you know, podcasts, listening to anything else. More time listening to the mighty king who is our shepherd. So let me just ask you, how's your listening? Are you listening to God? Are you disciplined in making time to listen to God? That's how we wait. We hang on his words. And then lastly, we expect. Waiting means expecting. You know, if I could say it rather bluntly, it's kind of insulting to a mighty king if we don't ask him for big things. What are you asking for? Is there someone in your family that needs big things from the Lord? Is there someone in your workspace, your neighborhood? How about in our world? How about in our country? How We spend time listening and then we go and ask this mighty king who is our shepherd for big things. John Newton put it this way in one of his hymns. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. None can ever ask too much. We're going to sing a song. The praise team is going to come out. And during this song, just take some time. If you need to sit for a moment, you can sit, kneel, stand during the song, whatever you want to do to find space with God. But just spend time reflecting on the mighty king who's become our shepherd, who wants to right now hold you close to his heart. And then pay attention to the spirit. What's the large petitions? that you can bring to this king. Let's just take some time and do that together as we hear and sing this song. Jesus, what a savior.